Concrete Cowboys won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to The Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about The, the thing. thing. I think The Thing is that we both have colds. Yeah, weird. <laughs> it's my first cold in like five years. Yeah, I don't normally <laughs> get sick either. Um, and it was a weird cold. Yeah. It's still, it's almost, mine's almost gone. It's just, it's it feels just, gone. Yeah. Just can't really. I just sound like I'm pinching my nose a lot. Take yourself back to 1982. Nice. January 9th, a 20 person Indian expedition team lands on the east coast of Antarctica, raising political questions about India's ultimate intentions in the Antarctic, which is the focus of mounting international tension over who should control its potential energy and food resources. Okay. Well,. We're like 50 years later. What's going on? I don't think India got a foothold in Antarctica. <laughs> I could be wrong. Crisis averted. There's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of oil down underneath Antarctica. It's just, you know, obviously it's very hard to, to drill there. Not anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> another three days. It's a lot easier. Be, it's like trying to drill in a Slurpee. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. February 9th, a UFO trails a commercial airline jet for one hour and 20 minutes during a routine flight between Fortaleza and Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And later on, that UFO would become Spirit Airlines. <laughs> it's really funny because they have a long interview with the uh, uh, the pilot, and he, he drew a whole picture and, like... What did it look like? Was it a cigar shape? No, was it, it was like... Saucer a, shaped? It was like a bill. It was shaped like upside-down bill. Bill who? Bell. Oh. Upside down Bell. Yeah, Bill. <laughs> An upside down Bill. Just a dude named Bill. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> April 26th, Wu Bum Khan, South Korean police officer, starts his killing rampage, going from house to house in multiple villages, killing everyone he comes into contact with. Six hours later, he'd taken 52 lives and wounded 33 others before killing himself and three hostages with two hand grenades. His final death count rose to 62 as some wounded died. His rampage started because his girlfriend woke him up by swatting a fly on his chest and then consuming insane amounts of alcohol. Okay, I'm going to go on record saying overreaction. (laughs) Just a bit. I've gotten grumpy for being a weekend. Yeah. But, you know. You're not One or two people, it. maybe. Killing Rampage. But 62. Yeah, it was, uh, it was super, super messed up. And, well, uh, that, look, let's be honest here. There's something a little bit more going on than just having a fly swatted on his chest and being pretty drunk. I mean, obviously the guy was... He snapped! Uh, the guy was insane. Yeah. I mean, I, he was obviously insane. Like, but... there, something definitely happened before he went to bed. Yeah, his... Girlfriend swatted a fly in his chest. Okay. But I think that's what woke him up. And he was stewing think, on... Th- yeah, I, I think the guy was just crazy. I don't think there was an, an actual thing. I think he was crazy. Oh, yeah. He I, killed all those people. Yeah, he did. It was awful. It, oh, it, geez, it literally please. changed South Korea entirely. Like, the way they handled guns and, and, and their their officers and stuff. It, it's a really fascinating story. Oh, well, yeah? Uh, and, and, and awful. Absolutely awful. All right. Well, let's have some fun. <laughs> All right. June 25th, The Thing is released in theaters. Doom. Doom. <laughs> soundtrack is so good for this movie. Ah. Was that the soundtrack? Yeah, that was the soundtrack. Yeah, that was oh. that was John Carpenter. He just goes, oh. Size? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. 
Uh, development of the film began in the mid-1970s when David Foster and fellow producer Lawrence Terman suggested to Universal Pictures an adaptation of the 1938 John W. Campbell novella, Who Goes There? Who Goes There? It's the thing. Ooh. <laughs> John W. Campbell was editor of Astounding Science Fiction, later called Analog Science Fiction, in fact, from late 1937 until his death in 1971. wonder why they changed the name. Uh, I don't, I think it was after he was gone. I don't, I think it's still running, but it's analog science fiction. In fact, listen, it sounds listen, terrible. Listen to me, guys. Okay, listen to me. Okay, he's dead. The ultra theme is over. Now, we're not going to be astounding science fiction because that just sounds like some stupid fantasy BS. I'm going to change the name to analog science fiction and fact. It is a much more appropriate name for our society and our types of writings. John W. Campbell has several science fiction awards named after him. <laughs> I've never had relations with a woman. I can tell. It had been loosely adapted once before in Howard Hawks and Christian Nyby's 1951 film, The Thing from Another World. Yeah, baby. I, I want to say I've seen this. I think I saw it in college, and I don't remember any of it. Yeah, uh, wasn't it like a giant spider or something? I remember it being really boring. <laughs> because like, there's another a, They Live that's yeah. old, but that's Ants. Them. That's called them. them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Foster and Terman wanted to develop a project. By the way, we're doing the thing. Not they live anymore. I know. <laughs> Just say it. Foster and Terman wanted to develop a project that stuck more closely to the source material. David Foster had found success with McCabe and Mrs. Miller in 1971, written and directed by Robert Altman, starring Warren Beatty. Amazing movie, by Amazing the way. movie. Very good movie. The Getaway in 1972, based on the 1958 Jim Thompson novel, adapted by Walter Hill, directed by Sam Peckinpah, starring Steve McQueen. Great movie, based on great book. Oh, the book is so good. Uh, do yourself a favor. Get yourself some Jim Thompson oh, books. Please. They're, very, they're not very long. They're awesome. They're the best noir in the biz, yes. in my opinion. And they've got the most messed up endings. Oh, my God. They just so come great. out of nowhere. So and they're great. creepy crazy. So good. He's so good. Uh, and The Drowning Pool in 1975, directed by Stuart Rosenberg and starring Paul Newman. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, there's a lot of people drowning in this pool. <laughs> Maybe we should put up a fence. <laughs> Possibly. Yes. That's what it was all about. Uh, Lawrence Terman has, was nominated for an Academy Award for The Graduate in 1967. It's a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, partnered with, okay. <laughs> he partnered with Foster in 1972. They started a production company together. Screenwriters Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins held the rights to make an adaptation, but passed on the opportunity to make a new film, so Universal sought to acquire the rights from them. Turns out, in 1976, Wilbur Stark had purchased the remake rights to 23 RKO Pictures films, including The Thing from Another World, from three Wall Street financiers who did not know what to do with them in exchange for a cut of box office when the movies were released. You know that Wilbur Stark was uh, uh, Tony Stark's his brother that didn't do too great. You yeah, know? his name was Wilbur. <laughs> hey, Wilbur, why don't you just go into Hollywood? Here, Here's a few mil. Yeah. Go make a thing. Go make a thing. Yeah, that's what they kept saying. Go make a thing. And he's like, right. oh, I'm going to make a thing. And then he made the thing. Yeah. Universal in turn. He's a literalist, acquired, Adam. He was a literalist. Universal in turn acquired the rights to remake the film from Stark, resulting in him being given an executive producer credit on all print advertisements, posters, television commercials, and studio press material. Nice. Wilbur Stark had a reputation for buying up old properties and remaking them for a profit. That's the Stark family way, baby. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. John Carpenter was first approached about the project in 1976 by co-producer and friend Stuart Cohen, but Carpenter was mainly an independent film director, so Universal chose Toby Hooper, as they already had him under contract. Tobe Hooper. Toby, yeah. 
The producers were ultimately unhappy with Hooper and his writing partner Kim Henkel's concept. After several more failed pitches by different writers and attempts to bring on other directors such as John Landis, the project was put on hold. Landis would have been really good. People forget about uh, American Werewolf yeah, London, was which say, was a really yeah. great thriller slash horror flick. Yeah. Comedy horror slash... Yeah, it's funny. I always forget that that has comedy aspects to it because yeah. the transformation scene is so horrifying. Griffin Dunn. Yeah. Oh, he's the, good. Yeah. He's yeah. the dead buddy. Hangs out. Being oh, dead. yeah, that's right. That's right. He's cool. Yeah, it was, I love that movie. The success of Ridley Scott's Alien in 1979 helped revitalize the project, at which point Carpenter became loosely attached following his success with his influential slasher film Halloween, released in 1978. Yeah. It was just Halloween recently. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, Carpenter was reluctant to join the project, having admiration for the Hawks adaptation, although he considered the film's monster to be bland. Mm, it's bland. <laughs> it's boring. I remember it not being very interesting. But uh, Cohen... It was another, you know, it was another allegory for nuclear yeah. annihilation. Yeah. Everything in the 50s was just one... We're all ready to kill each uh, other. Just one variation on a, on a theme. Well, yeah. That didn't really go away. <laughs> Cohen suggested that he read the original novella. Carpenter found the creepiness of the imitations conducted by the creature and the questions it raised interesting. He drew parallels between the novella and Agatha Christie's mystery novel, And Then There Were None, and noted that the story of Who Goes There was timely for him, meaning he could make it true to his day as Hawks had in his time. Carpenter paid homage to the Hawks adaptation in Halloween, and he watched The Thing from Another World several times for inspiration before filming began. I don't know if you remember that, but the... Uh, the Hawks movie is actually in Halloween. They're watching it on Halloween. Okay. The thing from another world. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Carpenter and cinematographer Dean Cundy first worked together on Halloween, and The Thing was their first big-budget project for a major film studio. So well shot. Oh, my God. So yeah. well shot. We uh, ended up watching it last night on... It's the first time I've ever seen it on Blu-ray. Oh, it's so clean. I don't normally... You know, I like them gritty and, and dirty. <laughs> Well, <laughs> this definitely fits that bill. And, and, and you know, I'd, I'd prefer a little bit of a smudge print, but it was, it looked great. Like It was really nice. It, it really is. I will have to say that the one thing about watching the Blu-ray is it really does justice to the cinematography. Yeah, yeah. Several writers developed drafts for, drafts for the thing before Carpenter became involved, including Logan's run writer William F. Nolan, novelist David Wiltz, and Hooper and Henkel, whose draft was set at least partially underwater and which Cohen described as a Moby Dick-like story in which the captain did battle with a large, non-shape-shifting creature. <laughs> yeah, I, I, this does not sound interesting. Yeah, they made that movie eventually, and, it, and they called it The Abyss. Technically, they did... Kristen Stewart was in a movie called Underwater, which is literally this exact concept. Yeah? Giant creature underwater, which is a really good movie, actually, but it's literally that concept. Literally? Yeah, the giant monster <laughs> harassing them five miles under the water. Uh, the writers left before Carpenter joined the project. Carpenter said that the scripts were awful as they changed the story into something it was not and ignored the chameleon-like aspect of the thing. Carpenter did not want to write the project himself after recently completing work on Escape from New York and having struggled to complete a screenplay for The Philadelphia Experiment, which I did not realize Carpenter wrote The Philadelphia Experiment screenplay. Yeah, he really struggled he... on that script. <laughs> it was and, not uh, great. <laughs> he, never, he never quite found his way out. No. Once Carpenter was confirmed as the director, several writers were asked to script the thing, including Richard Matheson. Your favorite. Yeah. 
He's everywhere. And for those of you who don't know, he was the writer who wrote I Am Legend. Yes. Among others. The among, yeah, a lot, a, lot, a lot of things. Bill Lancaster, son of Burt Lancaster, initially met with Terman, Foster, and Cohen in 1977, but he was given the impression that they wanted to closely replicate the thing from another world, and he did not want to remake the film. In August 1979, Lancaster was contacted again. By this time, he had read the original Who Goes There novella, and Carpenter had become involved in the project. Lancaster was hired to write the script after describing his vision for the film and his intention to stick closely to the original story to Carpenter, who was a fan of Lancaster's work on The Bad News Bears. We're both fans. Did not realize that Bill Lancaster wrote The Bad News Bears. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, you know? I, yeah, it's a great, he's a great writer. Like, I had no idea. Well, just because he's a son of a great actor doesn't mean... I, look, I, I was raised off people like... Willow Smith. Well, and also <laughs> and Colin Smith. Hanks. I, well, that's true. That's true. You some know. some are good. Some are not. Yes. And uh, oh, there's nothing wrong with the Smiths, but I mean. And the, and, and, uh, the uh, what's his name? The guy from The Boys. Quaid. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I always forget that he's the, Randy's son. <laughs> he's not Randy's son. I mean, Dennis's Dennis son. Sorry. Dennis Quaid and uh, what's her name? Randy's nephew. And, uh, and the lady from... Uh, mm. Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan. I was just going to say Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid. Were... Not Randy Quaid. Well, maybe Randy Quaid. Oh, Who God. Knows? I hope not. That would be we'll awful. See. We'll see as he gets older if, I the, would... <laughs> if the Quaid genes come squeezing well, out. Dennis hasn't gone insane, so I don't... <laughs> maybe it skips a generation. Or maybe he's just more protective. <laughs> well, that's true. Maybe. Lancaster conceived several key scenes in the film, including the Norris thing, biting Dr. Copper, and the use of blood tests to identify the thing, which Carpenter cited as the reason he wanted to work on the film. So you mean like biting his hands off? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's... Nor- yeah, Norris was the... <laughs> that's so... Those were both amazing ideas, by the so way. screwed up. Uh, the blood testing is great, too. I forgot how long that sequence goes on. Oh, it's so good. It's, it's, it's so, so good. good. This movie is so great at creating tension and paranoia. Yes. Lancaster said he found some difficulty in translating Who Goes There to Film, as it features very little action. He also made some significant changes to the story, such as reducing the number of characters from 37 to 12. Yeah, 37. It would be like, it's a mad, 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 mad world. <laughs> Nobody, everyone would have like four minutes of screen time. Yeah, well, less than that, it would be like, all right, seven more guys just died. <laughs> what were their names? I don't know. I don't know. Bill or something? They're all Bill. Bill. Three Bills and a Ted. Lancaster said that 37 was excessive and would be difficult for audiences to follow, leaving little screen time for characterization. You know, that's great. Another, like, if that if it was made today, they would keep the 37 so they'd have yeah. a bigger body count. So well, they could and, make it more of a, you know... And like they a, would throw guys in, like, you know, Kurt Russell would be in for, like, two minutes, and then they'd and he'd get paid a million dollars and be gone. Well, no, I mean, they'd keep a star, but they would have a lot no, more know, cannon fodder, and it would be much It'd more of an be, action film rather than a yeah, psychological be, it would, thriller. It wouldn't be good. Uh, he also opted to alter the story's structure, choosing to open his in the middle of the action instead of using a flashback as in the novella. So much better. Oh, yeah, yeah. The fact that it literally starts and you have to follow along just because yeah. you don't know what's going on. They don't know what's going on. It's... Well, the beauty is using Kurt Russell and his cohorts as uh, surrogates for the audience. Yeah. Everything yeah. They f- we find out, they find out at the same time Yeah, because they're, they know just as much as we do unless you speak – Norwegian. Norwegian, which you know exactly what the plot of the movie is. Which, yes. I'm sure it went really well in Norwegian. In fact, I think, I didn't write this down, I think in when it was released in Nor- Norway, I think they changed it to like Swedish. They changed or it to Japanese. Or, and yeah, then when it was in Japan, they changed it. Yeah. No, it's not. I, but I, I don't, yeah. Uh, anyway. 
several characters were modernized for contemporary audiences. Uh, McCready, McCready, originally a meteorologist, became a tough loner, described in the script as... 35 helicopter pilot, likes chess, hates the cold, the pay is good. Loves his Jane B. Scotch. Yeah. Lancaster aimed to create an ensemble piece where one person emerges as the hero instead of having a Doc Savage-type hero from the start. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, we all know who it's going to be because well, it's the yeah. handsomest guy. Well, yeah. You put a beard and a stupid hat on him, he's still going to be handsome. <laughs> that stupid hat. I, fucking, I love that hat. That hat <laughs> is the dopiest hat I've ever seen in a movie. And you know he was like, you know Russell was like, uh, I'm using it. I'm oh, come on, man. It's so goofy. I'm using yeah. it. It's, come on, man. Please. We gave you the sunglasses with the little coopy scoops on the side. McCready would wear this hat. He's in McCready's hat. <laughs> Man, are you still drinking J&B? Shut up. It's cold. <laughs> he was a Disney star. <laughs> exactly. That is so... Oh, we'll get to it. We'll yeah, get I to know, him. I know. Lancaster wrote 30 to 40 pages, but struggled with the film's second act, and it took him several months to complete the script. After it was finished, Lancaster and Carpenter spent a weekend in Northern California refining the script, each having different takes on how a character should sound. You know why they did it in Northern California? Because there's a lot of weed up there? Yep. Of course there is. It seems uh, like all of these movies, by the way, like Ghostbusters, this, anything in the 80s, early 80s, of course, mid to late 80s was cocaine. But yeah. the beginning 70s to 80s, they all went to like Aspen or San Francisco somewhere, yeah. smoked a lot of weed, and then fixed the script and then started production. Yeah. Well, it, it was called the the weed phase. Uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, of development. Right, right. Lancaster's script opted to keep the creature largely concealed throughout the film, and it was Botten who convinced Carpenter to make it more visible to have a greater impact on the audience. You should make it more uh, visible. I think uh, it will have a uh, greater impact on the audience. That's uh, Rob Botten who the, created all the creatures. Uh, Rob Botten. We will talk about soon. In 16. Oh, <laughs> he was very young when he worked on this movie. Uh, can you just pay me in clear cell? Lancaster's original ending had both McCready and Childs turn into the thing. In the spring, the characters are rescued by helicopter, greeting their saviors with, Hey, which way to a hot meal? <laughs> wink, 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 wink. Carpenter thought this ending was too shallow. Yeah, it was stupid. Yeah, it was dumb. Uh, it was just way too on the nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in total, Lancaster completed four drafts of the screenplay. If they had Arnold starring in it, then that would have been the ending because he would have been Arnold would not have been able. To, I'd love Arnold. Right the hot he would not have been able to pull this movie. <laughs> the yeah. thing. No. I'm gonna eat you. No. The novella concludes with the humans clearly victorious, but concerned that birds they see flying toward the mainland may have been infected by the thing. That's cool. See that? Yeah, that's a great concept. Uh, Carpenter opted to end the film with the survivors slowly freezing to death to save humanity from infection, believing this to be to be the ultimate heroic act. This is the thing that. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is the thing that I think wouldn't fly today. It, it did back then because it's how people think. Like, throughout the movie, whether it's Wilfred Brimley or whomever or the doc, it's just like, we got to stop this here. You yeah. know, it's yeah, done. Yeah. We're going to die. There's no hesitation of like, oh, yeah. man, I'm going to die. It's just like, no. we got to die. They they think about the greater good from the very beginning. Exactly. But if it were today, it'd be like, if oh, you no. guys are murder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was funny because watching it yesterday and you pointing out that Wilford Brim- I never really thought about it, but you pointing out that Wilford Brimley was running around destroying stuff yeah. so they couldn't leave. Exactly. Was was him thinking way ahead of like, oh my God, this will literally kill the entire planet. Right, which makes everybody think, oh, he's one of the things. Right. But it's, it's not. Not your uh, That's the, the thing script. about That's the thing about, about the, the thing. thing. Yeah. 
<laughs> uh, Lancaster wrote this ending, which eschews a Twilight Zone-style twist or the destruction of the monster, as he wanted to instead have an ambiguous moment between the pair of trust and mistrust, fear and relief. Well, the thing that's kind of a little bit bogue about it is if one of them is the thing, which a lot of people think... One, one of them is the thing. Well, that, it's just going to go to sleep and then wake up, and it will be like... Yeah, they'll find, it'll be found eventually. Yeah. So both of them, if one of them isn't the thing, then yeah, then it's a totally uh, it, you know, heroic thing mm-hmm. to do. But if one of them is the thing, then they should have what they should have done is doused each other in gasoline and had one last cigarette. That was my thought is the last heroic act should have been, in my opinion, should have been McCready killing Childs and then killing himself. Well, and then lighting them both on fire and then, yeah. you know, burning yeah. up the... That's the only way. Fire, fire, kill! Yeah. It's true. It's true. Spoiler alert. Yeah. After securing the writer and crew, the film stalled again when Carpenter nearly quit, believing that a passion project of his, El Diablo, was on the verge of being made by EMI Films. The producers discussed various replacements, including Walter Hill, Sam Peckinpah, and Michael Ritchie. My God, I I love this movie. One of my favorite movies (laughs) in the world. But to see the Sam Peckinpah version of The Thing? Yeah, it'd be weird. It would have been awesome. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. To see... Because uh, Peckinpah is one of my favorites. Sure. But to see him tackle, like, a horror movie, I, sure. oh, I think it would have been pretty crazy. Uh, development of El Diablo was not as imminent as Carpenter believed, and he stayed on the project. Uh, apparently, Carpenter was hesitant to direct the film because it's a Western. It would eventually be produced by Carpenter in 1990. Huh, I don't remember. seen El Diablo. I don't remember who directed it. I don't uh, know. So they moved on to casting. Uh, Kurt Russell was cast as R.J. McCready, the helicopter pilot. Wait, is his name Mac Reddy? <laughs> yes. No, Mac is ready. Mac is always ready. Yeah. Kurt Russell was involved in the production before being cast, helping Carpenter develop his ideas. Yeah. He, he didn't even ask him. He just would <laughs> he show just up at his calling house. Him what up? you guys working on? Hey. Huh? hey. Oh, yeah, oh I got some ideas. I got some ideas for you. Uh, hey, have you seen my new hat? Jesus, it's his hat again. <laughs> Have the guy wear this hat. That I'll was, let you borrow it. That was actually the main reason they didn't want to cast him was because yeah. that hat. He's bringing the hat. He brought the hat, guys. He literally wore the hat in to talk about the movie. <laughs> he liked my hat. Uh, Russell was the last actor to be cast in June 1981, by which point second unit filming was starting in Juneau, Alaska. Juneau. Yeah. Carpenter had worked with Russell twice before on Elvis in 1979 and Escape from New York in 1981, but wanted to keep his options open. That's kind of mean. Uh, he did, this is the second movie now where he's done this with Kurt Russell, where he's kind of like, eh, maybe. At least he cast him in this one. Yeah, I get it. I get, you know, like some directors don't want to be associated with just one actor. You know, they want to try new yeah. stuff. I mean, they obviously do good work together, but I... It just seems like a no-brainer. I mean, maybe it's because Kurt Russell was like, hey, I have some ideas for you. And John's like, yeah, dude, I'm good. Keep it to yourself, hat so. <laughs> Discussions with the studio involved using actors Christopher Walken, Jeff Bridges, or Nick Nolte. All interesting choices. I Yes. They were all either unavailable or declined. And Sam Shepard, who showed interest but was never pursued. He would have been great, too. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Tom Atkins and Jack Thompson were strong early and late contenders for the role of McCready, but the decision was made to go with Russell. Now, Tom Atkins, he was in Season of the Witch, right? Yes. Yeah, he's got that every man. He could yeah. have been in that movie. He, yes. In any part, really. Totally, totally. Yeah. Uh, in part... Car- Jack Thompson, too. Wasn't he the, the, the actor-turned-senator turned actor? Maybe. He was in the... He was in, like, the... Was that Jack Thompson? I, I maybe think so. it is. Yeah, okay. it is. He he was he ended up being a politician. Okay. He was in uh, one of the Die Hard movies. I think Die Hard Two. 
Yeah, that sounds right. I but he'd show up and stuff, but he was yeah. also a politician. Yeah. He was a good dude. Yeah. I think he passed. Yes, I do believe so. Uh, in part, Carpenter cited the practicality of choosing someone who had found rela- he had found reliable before and who would not balk at the difficult filming conditions. It took Russell about a year to grow his hair and beard out for the role. At various points, the producers met with Brian Dennehy, Chris Christopherson, John Hurd, Ed Harris, Tom Bettinger, Jack Thompson, Scott Glenn, Fred Ward, Peter Coyote, Tom Atkins, and Tim McIntyre. All great choices. Yeah, I mean, honestly, they're all good. I think the script was written well enough that they all could have pulled it off pretty well. Yeah, and they're all kind of... They've, like, Ed Harris definitely has the gravitas yeah, to do it. Yeah. Chris Christopherson's got that gruff kind of everyman beardo. Yeah. You know, part of the, Dennehy, an amazing Dennehy actor. would have been great. You yeah. Know? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, they all, they all. Peter Coyote, again. Peter Coyote was Super great. interesting actor. Really awesome. I love Tom Berenger. I, yeah. Fred, all of them. All, all of them. them. They would have been good. Some passed on the idea of starring in a monster film while Dennehy became the choice to play Copper. Each actor would was to be paid fifty thousand dollars, but after the more established Russell was cast, his salary increased to four hundred thousand dollars. Russell described the all male story as interesting, since the men had no one to posture for without women. Okay, easy, but I mean, it makes sense. I get it. I mean, it's it's them showing them true selves. No one's trying to be fake to impress ladies. Well, and... it is an interesting. There's not a lot of like all male films. No, there really like, isn't. Like Twelve Angry Men, I guess, might yeah, be one. Yeah, but. Uh, but this, and it's not, it's done in a way that makes sense. Like, it, it's yeah, it's, the, it's not excluding women for the time. And it all makes sense that yeah. at this research facility, right. These, they, they all kind of fit the part physically. They all, right. it just seemed very real. They were it, nobody except for Kurt Russell. Nobody's really that pretty. And they, then they made yeah. him look as gruff as possible, <laughs> giving him Santa Claus's beard and, uh, you know, and the hat. Especially for the 80s, I think if there were, like, women scientists and stuff yeah. there, there would be the, oh, got to protect the ladies trope. Because it was the, you know, the 80s. Yeah, it wouldn't have yeah, been, you know. Yeah. We, we were know, just coming up with yeah. uh, Ripley from Alien. Yeah, I was, you know, I was like, just going to say that. female protagonist. Alien was one of those movies where they did have women in it, but they definitely weren't posturing. Like, no. There was no. They were just was, as were tough the as the dudes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, it was they were... Yeah, it wasn't like they were the nurses of the, no, no. you know, the secretaries of the spaceship. <laughs> uh, Russell took a drag on a cigarette at the beginning of certain shots in order to make his breath appear more visible. Yeah, to make his breath more visible, not yeah. because he loved smoking cigarettes. <laughs> one of the bush pilots used in the film offered to crash one of the helicopters for money. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, look, I'll crash that copter, but it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you 75 bucks. What? what? Isn't your helicopter worth like 10 grand? Hey, look, I need 75 bucks right now, okay? <laughs> Don't ask me any questions, but I'll crash the captain. All right. Uh, when McCready and Dr. Copper go to visit the Norwegian camp via helicopter, the bush pilot actually turned the controls over to Kurt Russell once the chopper was off the ground. <laughs> hey, hey, Russell, take the controls. What? 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 Hey, he almost crashed it. It's going to cost you 75 bucks. If you watch closely, you can actually see the helicopter wobble because that's Russell taking the controls, <laughs> not knowing what he's doing. Oh, I love that timing. Oh, every... It, well, People were crazy back then, man. Yeah. yeah they didn't give a crap about, like, stars and no, no, putting people in danger. It was like, here, you take it. the controls. Yeah. Well, in, until the Twilight Zone. Well, yes. 
Well, geez, man. Ah, way to, way to put a rain on the party. Yeah. In the scene where McCready threatens the camp with dynamite and a flare, Rush, Russell rushed through his dialogue in order to get it all in before the 90-second flare ran out. I mean, listen, you guys. Everything is going to happen right now. It's going to be this. You're going to go look at it there. And I'm going to go look at it down here. And then we're going to find the, the suit. And we're going to go to that. And we're going to put it in. And we're going to put it in. And we're going to put it in. fire. You know what's funny? I knew this before watching it again last night, and it didn't seem like you rushed through anything. No, because it's already a tense moment. You would yeah. be doing it anyway. You yeah. know, it's like yeah. it, it adds to the, you know, to the... To he's the, literally holding dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it, he would rush through it. It's not yeah. like he's going to take his time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Russell, I, uh, you're wondering why I called you out here <laughs> to the drawing room. Does everyone have the coffee? Everyone yeah. sit down. Sitting, uh, comfortable. You comfortable? Yes. Oh, yes. You, you'll notice I have dynamite in my hand and a flare. <laughs> it's lit. <laughs> Let's put two and two together. It's true, though. It also is ironic that he obviously that flare would have gone out. <laughs> then what do you do then? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he's got to get his yeah. Uh, Russell and Carpenter played a lot of pong on set. Nice. John Carpenter, as we talked before, is a avid video game player. Yeah, for those of you unaware of what Pong is, it was like the first video game where yeah. it was just two uh, lines that were like paddles and a and a and little square went back and forth. Yeah. And people, we played it for hours. Loved hours, it. People hours. loved it. It was fascinating. I it loved was. it. I, I played a lot of Pong, too. Everybody who grew up at that point, because that's all we had, was Pong. Pong, yeah. Uh, the cast Keith David as Childs, the chief mechanic. Yeah. Oh, Keith David. Jeffrey Holder, Carl Weathers, and Bernie Casey were considered for the role of Childs. And Carpenter also looked at Isaac Hayes, having worked with him on Escape from New York. All great choices. Uh, they would have been fantastic. Uh, Ernie Hudson was the front runner. It was almost cast until they met with Keith David. I feel a little bad for Ernie Hudson. Yeah, but he got his... I mean, he, I mean, yes. he got his Ghostbuster. It was not, it was credits. a couple years later he did, but yeah, yeah. Uh... This was uh, the thing was David's first significant film role, and coming from a theater background, he had to learn on set how to hold himself back and not show every emotion his character was feeling, with guidance from Richard Mazur and Donald Moffat in particular. He's astounding in this movie. Astounding. He's like, so good. I can't, I mean, like I said, all those other guys would be fine, but he made the role his own, yeah. and he is such a good foil for McCready, and, and not yeah. in a way yeah. that seems forced or fake. No. They have this really good. Chemistry and not like, oh, the great buddies chemistry, but just right. like working together, there's electricity between the two of them. Yeah. And it makes all of their scenes like pop and crackle. Oh, so good. So Snap. Good. Snap. Crackle, crackle and pop. Crackle and pop. Like cereal. They're like Rice Krispies. Yeah. Uh, Mazer and David discussed their characters in rehearsals and decided that they would not like each other. Nice. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff I love where it's just like, yeah, it's not in the script. This is what we're doing. But I think a lot of them did that because. Although it's not, there's no explicit like, I don't like you or we're best friends. No. There no. is definitely relationships within the cast that work really well and are subtle. It's, it's obvious the ones that like each other and the ones that don't. It is very, very convincing as a bunch of guys that have been working together and living together for a long yes, time. Yes, that is exactly what would happen if a bunch of dudes were six yeah. months in, a, in a five rooms. <laughs> smoking a lot of weed, drinking a lot of booze. <laughs> Uh, a. Wilford Brimley is cast as Blair, the senior biologist. Before I got diabetes. Oh, my God. 
Uh, for Blair, the team chose the then-unknown Wilford Brimley as they wanted an everyman whose absence would not be questioned by the audience until the appropriate time. I just went to get me some Quaker oats. Uh, I do, it's interesting they call him then-unknown because he'd actually done a ton of stuff before this. He's, just, he's a character actor. Yeah. He had appeared in ten episodes of The Waltons and had appeared in six credited roles before The Thing, most notably The China Syndrome in 1979 and Absence of Malice in 1981, directed by Sidney Pollack, starring Paul Newman and Sally Field. Both great movies. Man, there was a... Like I said, they don't make those types of movies anymore. No. These adult movies that are like... No, no. They're like airport books or something. I don't know how to explain them, yeah. but there's this certain type of movie, this adult drama that just doesn't seem to be made anymore. They're very novel-like. Like, it is very, like, literature. Like, yeah. it's like you're reading a, a 1955 novel. Yeah, like it's, it's like a low-burn thriller type of thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's not too fancy, and it's not too yeah. crazy, but it's super entertaining. Yeah. The intent with Blair was to have him become infected early in the film, but off-screen, so that his status would be unknown to the audience, concealing his intentions. See, I don't think he was infected. I don't think he was either. I don't think he was until the moment when they came to him, and he was like, I'm good now, guys. I'm good. Like, yeah. I think he got... I think he when he was smashing stuff, he w- he saw what was going on. And then later, when they stuck him out in the cabin by himself, he got infected. It's so dark, but it's so brilliant. Right, and you never know. And it's, that's the great thing is you can interpret it any way. Every time you see it, yeah. you might spot something that will change your mind. That's true. Carpenter wanted to cast Donald Pleasance, but it was decided that he was too recognizable to accommodate the role. Yeah. I, he, was, he was too much of uh, Dr. Yeah. Loomis. Wilford Brimley was so spot on perfect for this part. Yeah. Uh, so good. Yeah. Uh, Brimley would go on to have a long career, becoming more well-known for his commercials for Quaker Oats and the American Diabetes Association before passing in August of 2020 from kidney complications. I think I wouldn't get diabetes from eating so many Quaker Oats. Uh, That's what happens when you douse some in sugar. I also do want to point out that I believe in this movie he was either 49 or 50. (laughs) He he looks old. (laughs) He does. T.K. Carter was cast as Nalls, the cook. He's another one of those guys that as soon as I I saw him, yeah. I love that dude. And yes. Anytime I saw him in something, I would I would I would watch it because T.K. Carter was in it. Plus, I love his name. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's great. Comedian Franklin A.J. also came in to read for Knowles, but instead he delivered a lengthy speech about the character being a stereotype and then left. Good for him. Uh, yeah. Carter had just come off appearing in The Hollywood Nights in 1980 and Southern Comfort in 1981, directed by Walter Hill. He continues to act, most re- recently appearing in an episode of Stumptown in 2020. Yeah, it was great to see him. And that was a great show. I think it was canceled, but I really liked yeah, that Yeah, I show. think it was too. It's really disappointing. It sucks because it was, I, I, I tell you, there needs to be a resurgence of the Private Eye yeah. show. Yeah. And I'm not talking about a remake of Magnum P.I., which they... Hawaii Five-O. Hawaii, well, that's, or, that, yeah, well yeah. that's a cop show, yeah. But this Stumptown was really interesting, cool, and the act... Uh, Colby Smulders. Colby Smulders, yeah. ...was the star, and she's awesome. She's great. It was so much I, fun to see her as a badass. Nice, nice. David Clennon was cast as Palmer, the assistant mechanic... Uh, Rob Botton, uh, the special effects wizard, lobbied hard to play Palmer, but it was deemed impossible for him to do so alongside his existing duties. Hey, guys, I really want to play the part. Um, uh, as we learn more about Rob Botton, you realize that the man never stops working. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, there's a reason why. Yeah. As the character has some comedic moments, Universal brought in comedians Jay Leno, Gary Shandling, and Charles Fleischer, among others. They opted to go with actor David Clinton, who was better suited to play the dramatic elements. Clinton had read for the Bennings character, but he preferred the option of playing Palmer's blue-collar stoner to a white-collar science man. Yeah. 
1980, Clinton provided the voice for Admiral Motti in NPR's Star Wars, the original radio drama. He sure did. <laughs> he was a regular on the TV show's Barney Miller. He would later win an Emmy for his guest appearance on the sitcom Dream On, starring Brian Benben. Brian Benben. Anytime I can say Brian Benben, I will. Yeah, I'm sure Brian Benben appreciates it. Clinton is staunchly anti-war and opposes any glorification of war in film or TV, especially in relation to the Vietnam War. In 2018, he, oppo- he opposed four Emmy nominations for Ken Burns' documentary program, The Vietnam War, feeling that it contained half-truths, distortions, and omissions about the war. David Clinton's line... You gotta be effing kidding! Is Kurt Russell's favorite and never fails to make him laugh. It's great. And it's been used over and over and over and over and over again in every other movie. With a few variations like, you know, you know, this can't be effing happening. Yeah, yeah. Or you gotta be effing kidding me. Um, Everybody uses that now. I liked, I, 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 this line is funny. And it was good. Yeah. Maybe it's because it's been overused so much. But my personal favorite line was with uh, when he came up after the, the dog thing was trapped in. And he was like, I don't know what it is, but it's ugly and pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> like it's, yeah. Uh, Clinton continues to work, most recently appearing in The Eleventh Green from 2020, starring Campbell Scott about Eisenhower covering up the existence of aliens. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it did terribly well. Well, I never heard of it. Uh, Donald Moffat was cast as Gary, the station commander. Powers Booth, Lee Van Cleef, Jerry Orbach, and Kevin Conway were considered for the role of Gary. All great. Uh, and Richard Mulligan was also considered when the production experimented with the idea of making the character closer to McCready in age. Well, Richard Mulligan, he was on soup. Oh, yeah. He yeah. was great. He, <laughs> Richard Mulligan, he just was a little bit too goofy for me. Yeah. There's a thing. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, the Powers Booth, Lee Van Cleef, Jerry Obark, they all would have been good. I, they would have been fine, but Donald Moffat just I, looks the part. I mean, he seems like eyebrows. the guy. Oh, Johnny Eyebrows. Johnny Eyebrows. What's up? What are you guys looking at my face for? <laughs> my, cat, my pet caterpillar's going to escape again? He's, um, he's so good. I. Would you guys have a chance? Could you get me? <laughs> it's like when he's, he's all tied up. Yeah. He's so good. And he looks he looks like the they all are perfectly cast. Yeah. And you buy the fact that these dumpy dudes. Yeah. I mean, it's I don't think there's ever been a horror movies are always even back then, it was, you know, kids at camp. Yeah, hot yeah. Hot teenagers doing hot teenager <laughs> things. And my favorite horror movie is a bunch of middle aged dudes, you know, in dealing with in the coldest things on from Earth. another planet. Yes. Yeah. But it's so perfectly cast, and all of these guys fit the part so well that yeah. it makes it so much more absorbing. This is one of the most absorbing movies yeah. that I yeah. you know, that just sucks you into the world and and Oh and, yeah. From punishes the, you from the very beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is it, it is so good. It's at so that. funny. The movie starts and it's just the shot of this cliff, and it goes on for a while. And I was like, oh, and then tiny little helicopter. Like you think it's going to come roaring over this cliff? No, tiny little helicopter in the distance. Oh, yeah, but with, I mean, it starts but in space with that. Well, like, uh, yes. You know, which, spoiler alert. It's <laughs> the first shot. <laughs> I always forget about that first shot. Yeah. No, which, it, granted, was 100,000 years ago. So right. Mean, yeah. And it's just, I don't know. It, it is just, like you said, it just starts and doesn't stop. And, and not yeah. that it's like some super fast-paced no, action flick. No. It is slow as molasses, but not, but not but in a bad way. Yeah. yeah. It is a, it's like being a part of it. You're, you're in... Yeah. You're chained to the chair with the rest of these guys waiting to figure out what the F is going yeah. on because, Im- holy moly. You- and 
nobody had ever seen effects like this at the time. No, nobody had ever seen no. something so gross and oh. drippy and gippy and blech uh, and so was, well yeah. done. I remember, I remember the first time I saw that head peel off and get oh, yeah. the tongue dragging it across the floor and then it turns into a <laughs> spider thing. Yeah. I mean, that. Well, you got to be effing kidding. <laughs> epic. Epic. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was the perfect line for that, too. Yeah. We were all thinking it. Yeah. Because nobody had ever seen anything like that. I I love the fact that this movie immerses you so deep into it that at certain points while watching the movie, you look at your friends and you go, maybe they're the thing. Yeah, maybe the thing. I'm the thing and yeah. I don't even know it. Ooh. Like, I don't, you know, it's, it's so, it gets in your head so well. I know. Well, we haven't seen Phoebe in a few <laughs> Well, well, she's out destroying the kitchen. And where's the cat? I haven't seen the cat either. Uh, I believe the cat is the thing. Oh, God. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Moffat had a long career appearing in Popeye just before starring in Thing. It's your Jim's favorite movie of all time. Uh, Moffat would later be best known for his film, role, film roles as Lyndon B. Johnson in The Right Stuff in 1983 and as the corrupt president in... Clear and Present Danger in 1989 and his appearances in West Wing. It's a clear and present danger. Yeah, I remember when he he's said that. He's so good. Yeah, he is. He's amazing, even with those brows. But he also <laughs> looked exactly. He's one of those guys that looked like yeah. he was 60, 60 years old since he was thirty. So, yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, he passed away in December two thousand eighteen from a stroke. Oh, what a shame! Yeah. Such an amazing character actor. Such a great guy great with such career. a great career. Yeah, yeah. Richard Mazur was cast as Clark, the dog handler. I love him. Yeah, he's so good. Richard Mazur also read for Gary, but he asked to play Clark instead as he liked the character's dialogue and was also a fan of dogs. I like dogs. Uh, and just a small disclaimer, if you are a fan of dogs and you've never seen The Thing, oh boy. you might not want to watch The Thing. There's a lot of doggy deaths. There's the a thing. lot of weird lot dog of stuff in this. Pretty <clears throat> effed up dog. Yeah. Torture porn going on here. It's, it's, yeah, it's bad. He was on One Day at a Time, I think, Richard, Richard Mazur. Yeah, That's where I remember I think so. him from. Uh, yeah. And uh, also, he was on It, playing oh, yeah, uh, he was. Stanley, yeah. the Stanley. older Stanley character, who kills himself, and then his head pops up in the fridge. Hey, guys! Man! <laughs> <laughs> Mazer worked daily with the wolf dog Jed and his handler, Clint Rowe, during rehearsals, as Rowe was familiarizing Jed with the sounds and smells of the people. This helped Mazur's and Jed's performance on screen as the dog would stand next to him without looking for his handler. Nice. Mazur described his character as one uninterested in people, but who loves working with dogs. And coincidentally enough, that's Richard Mazur. <laughs> but I tell you, if I had to pick, much. I would have picked the dog guy. Oh, yeah. I would have been like, yeah. yeah, I get to hang out with dogs all day. Yeah. Instead of stinky old Wilford Brimley, you... <laughs> no brainer. He went to a survivalist store and bought a flip knife for his character and used it in the confrontation with David's character. Uh, which I believe that Russell eventually takes it from him. He does. But that's what's so great. All these guys are bringing little chunks yeah. to this story and to their performance, which adds to all of the immersion. I mean, everybody yeah. in here is a great actor who's bringing their... They, they're making the parts of their own. Exactly. Yeah. Mazur turned down a role in E.T., the extraterrestrial, to play Clark. Of course he did. It was a crap role. It was probably a cop, was, or maybe yeah. the scientist is like, he's dead. Well, they he's actually dead. they cast him as in the lead, but <laughs> as ET or as no, as, as the, the as, as Elliot. <laughs> well, what's going on with this alien? Hey, hey mom. Hey, mom. <laughs> Zero charisma. Uh, Richard Mazur started his career in TV, making many guest appearances before being best known for his part in Rhoda. Rhoda! He would later appear in It, as Jim said, in 1990. Yeah. He would serve two terms as president of SAG in the late 1990s. Yeah, he did. Um, I voted for him. Oh, did you? Mm-hmm. Great. 
Uh, Mazer continues to work and most recently can be seen in guest appearances on the new Magnum P.I. and Bull. Ugh, both of those shows. Magnum P.I., F you for remaking that, and uh, I refuse to watch it. Never will. And uh, <laughs> It doesn't make the original go away, Jim. No, it doesn't. But it turns a new new trove of fans on that might watch the original. I don't think I think I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Richard Dysert was cast as Dr. Copper, the physician. William Daniels and Denny He were both interested in playing Dr. Copper, and it was a last second decision by Carpenter to go with Richard Dysert. William Daniels looks a little bit like Richard Dysert. Uh, Denny he he's uh, too big. I think uh was he Daniels? at the time? I mean I guess yeah, he's, he's a pretty big, big guy. Dude. Yeah, he's yeah. a big dude. But uh William Daniels was too wimpy. He was perfect. Yeah. He looked like, again, this guy looked like a doctor. Yeah, I totally just, bought it. Bought the him second you see him. The do- yeah, yeah, it's just like no questions asked. Yeah. Uh, Dysert made a name for himself in being there in 1979. He would be most well-known and win Emmys for his part on L.A. Law. Yeah. Which came later. For a scene where Dr. Copper's, ar- Copper's arms were severed, a real-life double amputee stand-in was used wearing a mask in the likeness of Dysert. Crazy. Well, they didn't have green screen arm removal back then. No. Um, that is nuts. That part is so gross. Yeah. And it's so well done. It is that again, too. Like, that, it's, again, this is a very slow burn movie, but the jump scares or the scares come out of nowhere. And are, cause yeah. it's already, yeah. what is so great about this and what is so great about Carpenter as a director is it is already a tense scene because the guy is, you know, they got to bring him back. He's yeah, dying. He's, he's hurt. Dying, yeah. There's chaos in the room. Everything's going on. Nobody's blah, blah, blah. And then in the midst of that, his stomach opens up and eats the guy's arms. And everybody's like, what the F? It is, <laughs> this movie is just perfection, baby. Yeah. Even even to the point when they're doing the blood thing and the yeah. jump scare happens, you know it's going to happen, oh, you and know it it's still coming. scares the crap you out of you. You just don't know which guy it's going to be. Yeah. It's oh, and sure. then you look over, and the guy's vibrating. Yeah. Uh, Richard Dysart passed away in April 2015 after a long battle with cancer. Oh. Yeah. Thomas J. Waits as Windows, the radio operator. Windows! In early drafts, Windows Windows was called Sanchez and later Sanders. But uh, they met a young Bill Gates who gave him $5 million to call him Windows 97. And they're like, Windows. why 97? Not Windows 82. No, because <laughs> he had a uh, vision of the future. Yeah. Uh, the name Windows came when the actor Thomas Waits was in a costume fitting and tried on a large pair of dark sunglasses, which the character wears in the film. Uh, he literally went around going, my name is Windows now. Oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> Waits started as a stage actor. In 1982, Waits competed with Matt Dillon and Kevin Bacon to land the role of Bobby in David Mamet's Pulitzer Prize winning play, American Buffalo. But again, he was like, I'm wearing sunglasses. Yeah. And you're calling me Windows. I mean, Windows. It's a good luck charm. Uh, Carpenter Russell saw him in this and cast him as Windows in The Thing. Uh, Waits continues to act and can most recently be seen in 645, a horror film from 2021. Awesome. Yeah. Charles Hallahan is Norris, the geologist. Hallahan started on TV, making a number of guest appearances on shows like... The Rockford Files, Happy Days, Hawaii Five-0, Dallas, All in the Family, Soap, and Lou Grant. In 1979, he made appearances in the horror film Nightwing and Going in Style, the feature film debut of Martin Brest, starring George Burns, Art Carney, and Lee Strasberg. <laughs> okay, Going in Style, it, just because it sounds like it, it isn't a horror movie. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Going in Style is actually a really fun movie about... Old guys robbing a bank or something? I think. Yeah, I think they're robbing a bank. Yeah, they yeah. made a remake of that that wasn't as good. But if you want to watch the original, it's do fun. it. It's yeah. fun, Because George Burns and Art Carney are brilliant. Oh, they're so funny. 
For the chest chomp scene, Hallahan spent 10 days uh, sitting for molds of his face and body. On the day of the shoot, after eight hours of makeup, he positioned himself alongside or inside the operating table with his arms, shoulders, and head exposed and blended into the mechanical fiberglass foam latex torso. Ooh. Hallahan would go on to appear in a ton of movies and before and TV before passing away from a heart attack at the age of 54 in 1997. That's so young! He was taken from us way too soon. Yeah. That's really disappointing. Peter Maloney was cast as George Bennings, the meteorologist. Maloney made his feature film debut in the 1968 film Greetings, directed by Brian De Palma. Maloney is deathly afraid of dogs, making his entrance in the thing very difficult for him. Oh, boy. Okay, Maloney, this is your big break. Just just be cool, Maloney. Dogs aren't going to hurt you. Oh, boy. I don't know if I can do it. Maloney continues to work and most recently can be seen in Dispatches from Elsewhere on AMC. Yeah, he can. (laughs) No idea what that is. (laughs) I've I've, I've never heard of it. Uh, Joel Polis was cast as Fuchs, the assistant biologist. Fuchs! The thing was Polis' feature film debut. He appeared in numerous television series, including... Alien Nation, Northern Exposure, Star Trek Voyager, Roseanne, Seinfeld, Chicago Hope, Boston Legal, and CSI. He appeared in a recurring role in television series Cheers as the mischievous Gary, owner of the rival bar Gary's Old Town Tavern. Yeah. Polis continues to work, mostly doing guest spots on TV shows. He's great. I do, did not, even even knowing it was Gary from Gary's Old Town Tavern, I did not recognize him in the thing at all. No, he looks completely different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's weird, but yeah. Universal initially set a budget of $10 million with $200,000 for creature effects, which at the time was more than the studio had ever allocated for a monster film. Well, they needed it. And it wouldn't be all the money they'd spend on the creature effects. <laughs> but, but yeah. Filming was scheduled to be completed within 98 days. Universal's production studios estimated that it would require at least $17 million before marketing and other costs, as the plan involved more set construction, including external sets and a large set piece for the original scripted Death of Bennings, which was estimated to cost $1.5 million alone. Better be a good shot. Uh, that was the... Was that the one? Was that the one where he goes? No, no, I'm thinking of Palmer, where he grabs Windows head. Anyway, uh, they didn't end up doing it. Regardless, they cut it. As storyboarding and designs were finalized, the crew estimated they would need at least seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars for creature effects. A figure Universal executives agreed to after seeing the number of workers employed under Rob Botton, the special makeup effects designer. Hey guys. Now, we're going to talk about Rob Botton a little bit. <laughs> At the age of 14, Rob Botton submitted a series of illustrations to well-known special makeup effects artist Rick Baker, who promptly hired him. Yeah, hired, kid! He worked with Baker on various films. Finally working on his own, his first big break was The Howling, where he was called to create an on-screen transformation from man to werewolf. It was a good one. Yeah. Notably, Botton's effect in The Howling appeared five months before his mentor Baker's similar scene in American Werewolf in London. Botton also worked on the Star Wars Cantina scenes, Creatures. He was the tallest player in the Cantina band. Nice. He was actually in Star Wars. At that time, he must have been like 16 or 17. (laughs) (laughs) After asking cinematographer Dean Cundy to introduce him to director John Carpenter, Botton was hired by Carpenter to create the special makeup effects for the 1980 film The Fog. Yeah, you know what was in The Fog? Dead people? Yeah, you know where they were from? Dead places? The sea. Oh, the sea, that's right, yeah. It was a boat sinking. Oh, okay. I haven't seen The Fog in a long time. It's good. It's a long, long time. Bad remake. Bad remake, yeah. During filming, then 21-year-old Botton was hospitalized for exhaustion, double pneumonia, and a bleeding ulcer caused by his extensive workload. I can do it. 
I can do it. Botten, you got to take a break, buddy. I got this. I got it. He he had a tendency to do most of the work himself. Uh, Control freak. He would, he would, and I quote, Hard the work. Yeah, opting to be directly involved in many of the complica- complicated tasks. His dedication to the project saw him spend over a year living on the Universal lot. There's nothing more endearing than a young know-it-all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Botton said he did not take a day off during the time and slept on the sets or in locker rooms. All right. To take some pressures off his crew, Botton enlisted the aid of special effects creator Stan Winston to complete some of his designs, primarily the dog thing. Yeah, you can do the dog thing. Botton has gone on to do work on many movies, notably the RoboCop series, Total Recall, Seven, and Fight Club, as well as more recent work on Game of Thrones. He does great work. The stuff in this movie, all the things in this movie, are insanely amazing. I bet you he did the head smashing in Game of Thrones. Oh, I'm sure. When Man Mountain smashed smashed uh, Pedro Pascal's head. Yeah. Uh, Spoilers. Spoiler alert. Associate producer, first AD, and Russell's brother-in-law, Larry Franco, was responsible for making the budget work for the film. Hey! My name's Larry Franco, and I make numbers work. <laughs> he cut the filming schedule by a third, eliminated the exterior sets for on-site shooting, and removed Benning's more extravagant death scene. Cohen suggested reusing the destroyed American camp as the ruined Norwegian camp, saving a further quarter million dollars. Franco can be seen in the film as the man leaning out the helicopter in the opening scene, uh, the one shooting at the dog. I'm Larry Franco. I'm shooting at the dog. <laughs> The effects budget ran over, eventually totaling one and a half million dollars. All on screen. All, all on it. screen. Forcing the elimination of some scenes, including Knowles' confrontation of a creature dubbed the Box Thing. Ooh. Uh, which that must at the very end. I think we actually, I think you actually asked me what happened to Knowles. Yeah. And I was like, I, I think he just got absorbed. But after that, the most screwed up. Jamming your hand into the guy's face uh, oh, at the yeah. end, Gary he's putting his fingers getting all his in his fingers face. in his face. Like, like that's such a gross oh, effect. It was so messed up. Uh, and it was one thing I noticed this last, and maybe because the Blu-ray, but when you see the shot of him walking away with his hand still attached yeah. to his face, they're part of each other now. Yeah, like, it was so creepy. He's absorbing him. So creepy. The thing was storyboarded extensively by Mike Plug and mentor Hubner before filming began. The work was so detailed that many of the film shots replicate the image layout completely. Cundy pushed for the use of anamorphic format aspect ratio, believing that it allowed for placing several actors in an environment and making use of the scenic vistas available while still creating a sense of confinement within the image. Yeah, you can cram. Anamorphic lenses make you... It, it also gives a claustrophobic look around yes. the edges. So yes. it's like it was... This is why Dean Cundy is genius, by yes. the way. One of our yes. best cinematographers. Yes. I don't know if he's still around, hopefully. Um, but maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but it's just, again, like this, everything is coming together to make a perfect film, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. It also enabled the use of negative space around the actors to imply something maybe lurking just off screen. Mm, creepy. Carpenter insisted on two weeks of rehearsals before filming as he wanted to see how scenes would play out. Which is great, too, because you got to get these guys, you have to have familiarity with them. You have to yeah. give them a chance to, to bond and oh, to when, create their... Yeah, when you literally only have 12 actors and that's it for your entire movie, yeah. like, yeah, spend the time. It was unusual at the time because the expense involved of getting them in, you had sure. to pay them during the time, but it was so necessary. Yeah, because movie. you have to create, your, as you're coming in the middle of the story, you have to create all of the history before we even see them. Yeah, yeah. 
filming was then moved to the Universal lot, where the outside heat was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The internal sets were climate-controlled to 28 degrees to facilitate their work. The team considered building the sets inside an existing refrigerated structure, but were unable to find one large enough. Instead, they collected as many portable air conditioners as they could, closed off the stage, and used humidifiers and misters to add moisture to the air. Hmm. After watching a roughly assembled cut of filming to date, Carpenter was unhappy that the film seemed to feature too many scenes of men standing around talking. He rewrote some already completed scenes to take place outdoors to be shot on location when principal photography moved to Stewart, British Columbia, which explains like the one scene where they are all like, they're literally outside talking about it. And I was like, why are you guys standing outside? Yeah. <laughs> which I mean, makes sense, but I, yeah. Carpenter was determined to use authentic locations instead of studio sets, and his successes on Halloween in the Fog gave him the credibility to take on the much bigger budget pro- project project of the thing. Yeah, I mean, a bigger budget, but also in some ways a more contained film because yeah, it's yeah. only one location. I mean, you know, basically yeah. one location. It is, really. I mean, you know, yeah. And a very contained cast. And, you know, it's yeah. like... A, a bigger budget, smaller film in some ways. Yes, yeah, totally, totally. A film scout located in an area just outside Stewart along the Canadian coast, which offered the project both ease of access and scenic value during the day. On December 2nd, 1981, roughly 100 American and Canadian crew members moved to the area to begin filming. During the journey there, the crew bus slid in the snow toward the unprotected edge of the road, nearly sending it down a 500-foot embankment. That would have stopped filming for a while. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> Some of the crew stayed in the small mining town during filming, while others lived in residential barges in the Portland Canal. They would make the 27-mile drive up a small winding road to the filming location in Alaska, where the exterior outpost sets were built. That must have been miserable. The sets had been built in Alaska during the summer atop a rocky area overlooking a glacier in preparation for snow to fall and cover them. They were used for both interior and exterior filming, meaning they could not be heated above freezing inside to ensure that there was always snow on the roof. Outside, the temperature was so low that the camera lenses would freeze and break. The crew had to leave the cameras in the freezing temperatures as keeping them inside in the warmth resulted in foggy lenses that took hours to clear. Filming, greatly dependent on the weather, took three weeks to complete, with heavy snow making it impossible to film on some days. Yeah, filming in snow is very difficult, and that's yeah. why they usually yeah. don't use real snow. No. That's why it, my, my, one of my favorite stories about shooting in the snow is uh, Revenant, The Revenant with uh, DiCaprio, mm-hmm. and how they started shooting it, because they shot it in order. Uh, they started shooting it in Canada, and they took so long to shoot it that the snow melted, and so they had to go down to South America to finish shooting it. Nice. Yeah. Follow the snow, everybody. Follow the snow. I also do want to point out the brilliance of them building the stuff during the summer and then letting the snow do the, the set design for them. Yeah. Well, everything you had to solve... Half of filmmaking back then was solving problems yeah. and trying to figure yeah. out a way to maneuver within nature and everything. You didn't have a bunch of visual effects. Yeah. You, didn't have yeah. a, you know, it's like... I think the biggest visual effect was the matte painting of the of the, the spaceship, spaceship. Yeah. which around the edges looked like a painting. Like it did. Thing. There was definitely stuff in the back. I was like, those are brush strokes. Yeah, if you looked at the, the, a little like too the much burners the blue, right? or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's when you get a little too much uh, clarity yeah, yeah. and it kind of... But it still was cool. Sure, I mean, of course it, it was. Great. It was great. Yeah. I love... Look, one of the great things about movies back then, you know, like that or the Temple of Doom or something, yeah. is that there, there are these awesome matte paintings yeah. that people get jammed into, yeah. and it's a work of art. It yeah. may not look... It's a it's a movie. It's part of what yeah. makes the magic awesome. Well, that's what in Star know. Wars, there's so many more matte paintings than people realize because yeah. they're done so well. 
so well. Uh, rigging the explosives necessary to destroy the set in the film's finale required eight hours. Keith David broke his hand in a car accident the day before he was to begin shooting. David attended filming the next day, but when Carpenter and Franco saw his swollen hand, they sent him to the hospital where it was punctured with two pins. He returned wearing a surgical glove beneath a black glove that was painted to resemble his complexion. <laughs> nice. His left hand is not seen for the first half of the film. Keep an eye out for that next time you watch it. <laughs> Carpenter filmed the Norwegian camp scenes after the end scenes using the damaged American base as a stand-in for the charred Norwegian camp. The explosive destruction of the base required the camera assistants to stand inside the set with the explosives, which were activated remotely. The assistants then had to run a safe distance while seven cameras captured the base's destruction. Filmed when the heavy use of special effects was rare, the actors had to adapt to having Carpenter describe to them what their characters were looking at, as the effects were not add to be added until post-production. There were some puppets used to create the impression of what was happening in the scene, but in other cases, the cast would be looking at a wall or an object marked with an X. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, the director... That's all acting is now. You just oh, I know. walk on a green screen, dressed in green, Look at looking that big at green ball. <laughs> and looking at tennis balls, Yeah. yeah. DP, uh, the director of photography, Cundy, suggested that the sets should have ceilings and pipes seen on camera to make the spaces seem more claustrophobic. By the end of production, Carpenter had to make a personal appeal to executive Ned Tannen for $100,000 to complete a simplified version of the Blair thing. Ennio Morricone uh, composed the film's score as Carpenter wanted the thing to have a European musical approach. This was the first film that Carpenter directed that he didn't write the score for. Carpenter flew to Rome to speak with Morricone to convince him to take the job. By the time Morricone flew to Los Angeles to record the score, he had already developed a tape filled with an array of synthesizer music because he was unsure what type of score Carpenter wanted. Interesting. Morricone wrote complete separate orchestral and synthesizer scores and a combined score, which he knew was Carpenter's preference. Carpenter picked a piece closely resembling his own scores that became the main theme used throughout the film. Yeah, because it's got that... Morricone knew what he was doing. <laughs> he, yeah. he knew how to get the job, yeah. He also played the score from Escape from New York for Morricone as an example. Morricone made several more attempts building the score, bringing the score closer to Carpenter's own style of music. In total, Morricone produced a score of approximately one hour that remained largely unused and was later released as part of the film's soundtrack. Hmm. That's crazy, a lot of music. Unused music composed for this film was later used by Ennio Morricone in Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight in 2015. Recycling. Ironically, Morricone's Thing score was famously nominated for a Razzie for Worst Score, while his score for Hateful Eight won him an Oscar. Yeah. Yeah, the Razzies are dumb. I'm sorry. I just, every time they, I hear about them, it's just dumb. Well, that's, I, uh, people, it would, the reason why I want a Razzie is because that type of music was kind of new. And everybody was used to, especially at that point, oh, the Golden Boy. Uh, yeah, Mr. Star Wars. Well, and the movie, we'll get into this, but the movie wasn't totally loved when it first came out. Idiots. So, I mean, the opening title attempts to replicate the appearance of the original Howard Hawks film. To create the effect of the title, an animation cell with the thing written on it was placed behind a smoke-filled fish tank, which was covered with a plastic garbage bag. The bag was ignited, creating the effect of the title burning onto the screen. It was all practical, which is cool. Yeah, it's, that's so, that is awesome. Yeah. The final cost was $12.4 million, and overhead costs brought it to $15 million. The lack of information about the film's special effects drew the attention of film exhibitors in early 1982. They wanted reassurance that the thing was a first-rate production capable of attracting audiences. So Cohen and Foster, with a spe specially employed editor, 
and Universal's Archive Music put together a 20-minute showreel emphasizing action and suspense. They used available footage, including alternate and extended scenes not in the finished film, but avoided revealing the special effects as much as possible. The reaction from the exclusively male exhibitors was generally positive, and Universal executive Robert Ream told Cohen that the studio was counting on the thing's success as they expected E.T. the extraterrestrial to appeal only to children. Idiots. <laughs> yeah. When finalizing the film, Universal sent Carpenter a demographic study showing that the audience appeal of horror films had declined by 70% over the previous six months. Carpenter considered this a suggestion that he lower his expectations for the film's performance. Hey, guys. Hey. Oh, God. It's me, Bob. What's up, Bob? Yeah, I remember I had to go talk to John and just tell him, you know, nobody likes your types of movies anymore. <laughs> So You've already given me money for it. No, nobody's going to like it. You're going to fail. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Like I did as a father. Yeah, go get your kids. I don't know where they are. <laughs> well. We should. <laughs> Probably. All right, bye, Bob. Uh, after one market research screening, Carpenter queried the audience on their thoughts, and one audience member asked, What the hell happened uh, at the very end? <laughs> Which one was the thing? When Carpenter responded that it was up to their imagination, the audience member responded, Oh, God, I hate that. Oh, you're going to put you in the nose. This is what you have to deal with when you're working in Hollywood. you got to tell me exactly what happened so I'm going to kill myself. Uh, after returning from a screening of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, the audience's silence at uh, the Thing trailer caused Foster to remark, We're dead. The response to public pre-screenings of The Thing resulted in the studio changing the somber black-and-white advertising approved by the producers to a color image of a person with a glowing face. <laughs> hey! Yep. The tagline was also changed from... Man is the warmest place to hide. Written by Stephen Frankfurt, who wrote the alien tagline... In space, no one can hear you scream. They changed it to... The ultimate in alien terror. Trying to capitalize on aliens audience i think the man is the warmest place to hide and is the warmest. that is so creepy and it sets it up so well (laughs) carpenter attempted to make a last minute change of the film's title to who goes there to no avail what if i change the name to who goes there i think he was really high (laughs) in 1981 horror magazine fangoria held a contest encouraging readers to submit drawings of what the thing looked like winners were rewarded with a trip to universal studios yeah it used to cost 16 bucks Back then. Now it's 116 bucks. 60. Yeah. On its opening, wait, Universal Studios? I don't know. No, it's $116 to really? get for one day. Good Lord. Yeah. On its opening day, a special screening was held at the Hollywood Pacific Theater, presided over by Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with yeah. free admission for those in costume as monsters. I love Elvira. She's great. At the cast and crew screening, the actors, including Kurt Russell, believe the film had lost a lot of its relationship work due to the monster effects, and matte painter Albert Whitlock called the film offensive. Okay, this is offensive. I find this offensive. Offensive. I mean, it's really gross. <laughs> so, like, I can understand if you're very sensitive. Sure. Uh, only Rob Botton and his crew believe they had made something amazing. Most of the actors have changed their minds about the film in subsequent years. Yeah. Uh, the Thing was released in the United States on June 25th, 1982. During its opening weekend, the film earned $3.1 million from 840 theaters, an average of just under $3,700 per theater, finishing as the number eight film of the weekend behind Supernatural or Poltergeist with $4.1 million, which was in its fourth weekend of release and head of action film Megaforce with $2.3 million. Do you not remember Megaforce? Uh, Megaforce was a uh, Chuck Norris movie. 
in fact, I know this because my best friend Damien growing up, literally whenever something really dumb happened in a movie, because there's a point where he drives a motorcycle and like jumps it and is like shooting people. It's so bad and it's so cheesy. Mega five. Every time something bad like that happened in a movie, we'd look at each other and go, Mega Force. <laughs> yeah. Always chasing them. Always chasing them. Uh, it dropped out of the top 10 grossing films. After three weeks, and ended its run earning a total of $19.6 million against its $15 million budget. Criminal. Making only the 42nd highest grossing film of 1982. Criminal. It wasn't a box office failure necessarily, but it wasn't a hit either. Yeah, and that's kind of not where you want to be. No, no. The film received negative reviews on its release and hostility for its cynical, anti-authoritarian tone and graphic special effects. Excuse us for making a realistic, (laughs) gritty film. Some reviewers were dismissive of the film, calling it the quintessential moron movie of the 80s and instant junk and wretched excess star logs alan spencer called it a cold and sterile horror movie attempting to cash in on the genre audience against the optimism of et the reassuring return of star trek 2 the technical perfection of tron and the sheer integrity of blade runner uh i'm gonna go on record and say that i actually like the thing more than all of those movies (laughs) yeah yeah, i mean they're all good don't get me wrong maybe except blade runner but, but Blade Runner at the time, yeah. Literally talking about the thing right now. We just watched it last night, and talking about it right now, I want to sit down and watch it again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Thing from Another World, actor Kenneth Toby and director Christian Nyby also criticized the film. Isn't that like our film? Nyby said, If you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial job for J.B. Sketch. Carpenter took the criticism personally. I take every failure hard. The one I took the hardest was The Thing. My career would have been different if it had been a big hit. The movie was hated, even by science fiction fans. They thought I had betrayed some kind of trust, and the piling on was insane. Even the original movie's director, Christian Nyby, was dissing me. Since its release, cultural historians and critics have attempted to understand what led to the thing's initial failure to connect with audiences. In a 1999 interview, Carpenter said audiences rejected the thing for its nihilistic, depressing viewpoint at a time when the United States was in the midst of a recession. This movie, if it was released in 1974, would have been the biggest hit of that year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because that was the time. It's, it's the same thing as we talk about, like... Decade to decade, you know, the the 80s, the early 80s is like the end of the 70s, but now we're like into 82. Yeah. And, you know, with E.T. and we're starting, we're in the middle of the blockbuster age, you know, after Star Wars. And now we know that movies, you know, can open at $100 million and they have to, everybody's got to love it. And, uh, you know... And let's be positive and Reagan rah, rah, rah. It was the early rah, rah, Reagan years, yeah. And to have this, this realistic portrait of paranoia... And yeah. and it's it would have worked much better in like f- even five years earlier because it was a nihilistic time after the you know during the Vietnam War yeah. just right after the Vietnam War people were ripe for this kind of stuff but you know as as, as we got into the eighties it became so super the cocaine yeah but it became so superficial and everybody was about shoulder pads and happy endings and you know yeah body counts and this and that it was it, we we were losing depth yeah in the eighties. There's some amazing, some of my favorite films in the 80s. Some of the greatest films were made in the 80s. But there wasn't a ton of depth no. in a lot of the films of the 80s. No. They kind of no. were what they were, and that's the charm of them. But yeah, the this depth, was a the challenging film. didn't go very deep. Like, yeah. it, it was not like this. You have this disgusting, brilliant horror movie about a bunch of middle-aged men scared to death of each other yeah because nobody knows you know it's a good allegory for so many different things i think it goes back to that that 
that uh, guest at the, the screening saying they didn't want to have to work for movies anymore. Right, right. They wanted stuff handed to them yeah. on a platter and yeah. say, this is what's happening. Like, they didn't want to sit and work while they're being entertained. Yeah, and, I mean, that's... that's Look, I love big, budget, huge summer movies and stuff, but yeah. that's the result is so uh, people get lazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when it opened, it was competing against the critical and commercially successful E.T., the extraterrestrial, garnering a box office of $619 million. Yeah, that's not the one you want to go um, up against. Much more optimistic take on an alien visitation. Well, that's oh. the thing, too. It's like you have the pull, you know, we have the bookends of the, of, of the alien stories, yes. you know, they one end. completely opposite. Exactly. Although, although, watching it again last night, we did comment to each other. That the alien, when he was, when you find out that Blair was building the ship, he just wants to go home, man. Yeah. He wants to go home just like E.T. does. It's the same story, except instead of Reese's Pieces, you got people pieces. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, the thing opened on the same day as the science fiction film Blade Runner, which debuted as the number two film that weekend with a take of $6.1 million and went on to earn $33.8 million. Then they thought that was a failure, too. I it, remember seeing it, that in yeah. the theater. It was regarded as a critical and commercial failure at the time. I remember sitting at my friend's parents' like breakfast nook, looking at the paper and looking at the movies and being like, there's a new Harrison Ford movie out? Yeah. Blade Runner, this looks cool, and then deciding to go see that. Right. And then loving it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, others blamed an oversaturation of science fiction and fantasy films released that year, including... Conan the Barbarian, Poltergeist, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Mad Max 2, and Tron. Some analysts blamed Universal's poor marketing, which did not compete with the deluge of promotion for prominent films released that summer. Another factor was the R rating it was given, restricting the audience to those over the age of 17 unless accompanied by an adult. Yeah, but they could have mar- they could have used all of this to its advantage. Agreed. And they didn't because they they just these all of uh, unfortunately Carpenter's films kind of defy any sort of cookie-cutter description. Uh, You know, this and Big Trouble in Little China, all the ones that don't do well in the theaters because people are like, I don't know. Right. What is this? Yeah. But when they start watching them, they're like, oh, this is glorious. Well, yeah, yeah. In contrast, Poltergeist, another horror film, received a PG rating, allowing families and younger children to view it, which I, again, didn't realize Poltergeist was PG. Oh, yeah. That has some really scary stuff in it. It does. Not like the thing. <laughs> right. I mean, there are, like, I think if, if Poltergeist were released today, it would have probably gotten an R. Yeah. I agreed. At agreed. least a PG-13. But yeah. there was no PG-13. No, no, yeah, I wasn't there at the time. The impact on Carpenter was immediate. He lost the job of directing the 1984 science fiction horror film Firestarter because of the thing's poor performance. Such a bummer. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen his version of Firestarter. Yeah. His previous success had gained him a multiple film contract universal, but the studio opted to buy him out of it instead. He continued making films afterward, but lost confidence and did not openly talk about the thing's failure until a 1985 interview with Starlog where he said, I was called a pornographer of violence. I had no idea it would be received that way. The thing was just too strong for the time. I knew it was going to be strong, but I didn't think it would be too strong. I didn't take the public's taste into consideration. That poor guy. God. Why should he, though? He's an artist. Yeah, but he does. That's what he does. I know, but he... The funny thing is, is even though he's concerned about the audience, he delivers challenging movies I, yeah, that yeah. that he's proven right eventually. Right. He's always proven right. He's like the king of the cults. Yeah. 
Shortly after its release, Wilbur Stark sued Universal for $43 million for... Slander, breach of contract, fraud, and deceit. Alleging he incurred a financial loss by Universal failing to credit him properly in its marketing and by showing his name during the end credits a less prestigious position. All right, easy, Stark. Stark also said that he... Contributed greatly to the screenplay. David Foster responded that Stark was not involved with the film's production in any way and received proper credit in all materials. Stark later sued for a further $15 million over Foster's comments. The outs- outcome of the lawsuits are unknown. Yep. Wilbur Stark. Dark Horse the Stark family. Wilbur Stark, the enemy <laughs> of, of the movies. Yeah. yeah. Dark Horse Comics published four comic book sequels starring McCready, beginning in December 1991 with the two-part The Thing from Another World by Chuck Farrer, which is set 24 hours after the film. Interesting. Farrer was reported to have pitched his comic tale to Universal as a sequel in the early 1990s. No, no, thank you. No, thank you. This was followed by the four-part The Thing from Another World, Climate of Fear in July 92, the four-part The Thing from Another World Eternal Vows in December 93, and The Thing from Another World Questionable Research. In 1999, Carpenter said that no serious discussions had taken place for a sequel, but he would be interested in basing one on Farr's ad- adaptation, calling the story a worthy sequel. Have you read those comics? I have not. I do need to find them, because they all sound fascinating. Yeah, they sound great. A 2002 video game of the same name was released for Microsoft Windows, PlayStation 2, and Xbox to generally favorable, favorable reviews. Oh, it's so good. It was such a great game. It had like a paranoia meter and you yeah. had to kind of manage yeah. everybody's fear and it was just such a unique game it was so different yeah and it was had a great replayable value to it because it was not the same you know it was right you know right. it wasn't like a, a completely different thing every time it wasn't like yeah, a yeah. procedurally generated situation but it was so well done and i don't remember anything since or before that is like it at all. Right, right. The game's plot follows a team of U.S. soldiers investigating the aftermath of the film's events. In 2005, the Sci-Fi Channel planned a four-hour miniseries sequel produced by Frank Darabont and written by David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick. Interesting. The story followed a Russian team who recovered the corpses of McCready and Childs as well as remnants of The Thing. The story then moves forward 23 years where The Thing escapes in New Mexico and follows the attempts at containments. The project never proceeded, and Universal opted to continue with the feature film sequel. A prequel film, also titled The Thing, was released in October 2011 to a $31 million worldwide box office gross and mixed reviews. It was fine. The story follows the events after the Norwegian team discovers The Thing, lit prequel, essentially. In 2020, Universal Studios and Blumhouse Productions announced the development of a remake of Carpenter's The Thing. The remake was described as incorporating elements of The Thing from Another World and The Thing, as well as the novella Who Goes There and its expanded version, Frozen Hell, which features several additional chapters, although released years apart. I I, I don't know what happened with that. Hopefully it didn't happen, because we don't need it. I mean, it it, it might not be happening. We don't need it. Although released years apart and unrelated in terms of plot characters, crew, or even production studios, Carpenter considers the thing to be the first installment of his Apocalypse Trilogy, a series of films based around cosmic horror, entities unknown to man that are threats to both human life and sense of self. The Thing was followed by Prince of Darkness in 87 and In the Mouth of Madness of 94. All three films are heavily influenced by Carpenter's appreciation for the works of Lovecraft. Nice. Look, what can we say about this movie? This movie is so unique Yeah. in terms of film and horror film. There is, yeah. This is probably why it's my favorite, because I think it gets you in a way, like, watching Halloween or watching... Mm-hmm. 
uh, Friday the 13th or even Nightmare on Elm Street or any of these horror movies. It's fun and it's goofy. And, you know, this movie's terrifying. Yeah, and seeing yeah. this movie in the theater was terrifying because yeah. you don't know. And it's not played for that. La- There's unintentional yeah. laughs. There's like <laughs> stress relief laughs. Yeah. But it's yeah. not, you know, it's not that it's a somber, you know, no, horrible, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, yeah. sad film to watch, except for the dog stuff. But it is so unique in terms of the way it manipulates you. Yeah. That I don't think there's another film like it. I can't think of. No. I mean, can you think of one? No, no, nothing that that makes me question my own sense of being. Yeah, yeah. and just done. It's it's of a time that it, it couldn't really be done. I can't imagine them making a movie with a bunch of dumpy middle aged dudes. You know, if no, they remade no. it, it would be like oh. Chris Evans, you know, oh, all ripped. Early 20s. Yeah, and they'd all be like, good. Yeah. even the old guys would be like super ripped. Yeah. And, you know, uh, they wouldn't get to be just dumpy every guys. Right. And which added to it because most of the actors were not physically imposing. No. Or, no. you know, had any sort of like malice to them. So when Richard Mazur... Starts wiggling and jiggling and turning into a pile of goo. It's yeah. freaking scary because it yeah. takes these like these guys, you know, something where your best friend or your buddy or your dog right, turns right. into this thing that wants to eat you. <laughs> it's, and you're stuck. It There's nowhere to go. You. Yeah. yeah, you can't run outside because it's way too cold. You'll freeze to yeah. death. Yeah, and you can't lock yourselves in someplace because it can. It's just so well done. It's just yeah. there's nothing like it and. And I don't th- – and, 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 like, it's going to be hard to replicate it, too. I mean, I haven't seen yeah, it replicated, yeah. that type of – that was a problem with the sequel. It was it was fine. Yeah. But you can't recapture that magic. No, it'd be really hard. I, I The thing – the reason that I love about this movie – or the thing that I love about this movie and, and the reason that I think I love it so much is that it, it is a nice, self-contained story. Yeah. Like, part of me is happy it didn't do well because I didn't want to see sequels to no, it. No, it didn't I, need one. It would ruin it. If it had done really well, there would have been the thing in New Mexico, the thing in D.C., the thing in, you know, like... McCready survives. And yeah. He kills Childs because Childs was the guy. And there's, like, the the film would open with, like, him waking up and seeing Childs changing. And then there would be a big battle. And then somebody right. would rescue him and... And we didn't. We don't need Six that. Six years later. Yeah, we don't need any of that. It's no. Not, you know, it's it. It was. It's such a good. It starts, and it takes you along for the ride. And yeah, then, and, and then, then it, it's done. And then it's like f you. Yeah, we're not going to tell you who yeah. who's who because so that's life, baby. Yeah, that is life, and they're both going to die anyway. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know? Do you have uh, Do you have an opinion on on if one of them was the thing at the end? I don't think either of them was the thing. I disagree. That's okay. I think you it... asked me my opinion. Can I let me tell you my opinion? Real sure. Quick. So, the reason why I don't think either of them is the thing, because if one of them was, there's absolutely no reason for it not to kill the other person and then just wait there and be like, "This is what happened." Like, yeah. There's no reason because the thing, the thing about the thing, is it wasn't. It didn't seem to be like this clever, deceptive. Thing like when it became the thing, it kind of pretty much turned into the thing pretty quickly. It didn't like run or yeah, you know, it wasn't like ooh Hannibal Lecter. Right, it didn't right. seem to have this you know innate intelligence that it used to kind of trick people. I don't know. It's so for me, it just seemed like these two guys 
thinking each other are the thing. Right. But I think if one of them was the thing, there's no reason why it shouldn't have revealed itself. Uh, I think that Childs was the thing, but only because if you watch the scene closely, you can't see him breathing. Oh. There's no breath coming out of his mouth or his nose like like uh, there is with Kurt Russell. Well, he didn't smoke a – take a big drag of cigarette before the uh, take. <laughs> but but that being said, I mean, it, it, that's what I love about it. It's open to interpretation. Sure. Nobody's wrong. Nobody's right. You know, and even Kurt Russell could have been the thing. But I that, – that's a big stretch for me. Yeah. Him being the thing because it doesn't – it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I, I think definitely – I'm, I'm iffy on Childs, but I think definitely McCready was not. Yeah. I, yeah. But again, I mean, you know, probably somebody has a really great thesis of why he's the thing, and that's right. the beauty of it. I love, and I'm going to use the A word, art, Yeah. that you can interpret. Good art is interpretable. Good art gives you the onus to give it meaning Yeah. and to interpret it how you want, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and that and this film does that. That it's very rare in movies. Yeah, and especially very horror rare. movies. Yeah. You know, this thing is is a unicorn in terms of horror movies. It 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 goes against every known yeah. Yeah. trope of horror movies pretty much. Yeah. Um, it zigs when other movies zag. Exactly. And there's it has no right to be as great as it is. <laughs> That's true. It's and true. and it is absolutely a masterpiece. I, a masterpiece. I would use the P word. Perfect. Yeah, a hundred percent. It is one hundred percent a perfect, perfect movie. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Yeah, uh, it's hard to find right now. We couldn't find it on streaming. We've got yeah, uh, it's not available on anything right now. You can rent it on like Amazon Prime and, and all those places. Yeah, but, uh, lucky enough, friend of the show, Jana Weimer, uh, lent us her Blu-ray. I had to trade her Last of Us Part Two. Nice, that's I think a good she trade. Got the better of the deal. Yeah. Um, but wow. I mean, she didn't trade for keeps. She'll get no, 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 no. But she'll get she'll get good enjoyment out of that. I'll probably well, I'm going to keep this until she gives it back. So I'll I'll be able to watch, watch it again. a couple more times. Yeah. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, see it. Definitely watch this movie. It's for your collection. It's one of the greatest horror movies ever. It's yeah. It's just it, I don't even want to call it a horror movie. I, I just want to say it's a great, great movie. It's in my top ten. It's a great movie of yeah. favorite movies. It's something that I can watch over and over again. Find something new. Yeah. And I'm always in it. It's yeah, just yeah. so – it just sucks you in, and it doesn't let you go. It's so good. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, Stepdad Show. We'll yeah. uh, we'll talk about what we've been up to and watching and all that fun stuff. Yeah, and hopefully we'll sound like normal people and not like <laughs> nasally Nancys. Hopefully. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. <laughs> See you nexties. It's weird. Yeah. I I don't usually. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a great show. I don't normally get sick either. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming, The Six Billion Dollar Man, already in progress.